Chapter Twenty of Tales of a Traveller by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. The Booby Squire. A long time elapsed, said Buckthorn, without my receiving any accounts of my cousin and his estate. Indeed, I felt so much soreness on the subject that I wished, if possible, to shut it from my thoughts. At length, chance took me into that part of the country, and I could not refrain from making some inquiries. I learnt that my cousin had grown up ignorant, self-willed, and clownish. His ignorance and clownishness had prevented his mingling with the neighbouring gentry. In spite of his great fortune, he had been unsuccessful in an attempt to gain the hand of the daughter of the parson, and had at length shrunk into the limits of such society as a mere man of wealth can gather in a country neighbourhood. He kept horses and hounds in a roaring table, at which were collected the loose livers of the country road, and the shabby gentlemen of a village in the vicinity. When he could get no other company, he would smoke and drink with his own servants, who, in their turns, fleeced and despised him. Still, with all this apparent prodigality, he had eleven of the old man in him, which showed that he was his true-born son. He lived far within his income, was vulgar in his expenses, and penurious on many points on which a gentleman would be extravagant. His house-servants were obliged occasionally to work on the estate, and part of the pleasure-grounds were ploughed up and devoted to husbandry. His table, though plentiful, was coarse, his liquors strong and bad, and more ale and whiskey were expended in his establishment than generous wine. He was loud and arrogant at his own table, and exacted a rich man's homage from his vulgar and obsequious guests. As to Iron John, his old grandfather, he had grown impatient of the tight hand his own grandson kept over him, and quarrelled with him soon after he came to the estate. The old man had retired to a neighbouring village, where he lived on the legacy of his late master, in a small cottage, and was as seldom seen out of it as a rat out of his hole in daylight. The cub, like Caliban, seemed to have an instinctive attachment to his mother. She resided with him, but, from long habit, she acted more as servant than as mistress of the mansion, for she toiled in all the domestic drudgery, and was oftener in the kitchen than the parlour. Such was the information which I collected of my rival cousin, who had so unexpectedly elbowed me out of all my expectations. I now felt an irresistible hankering to pay a visit to this scene of my boyhood, and to get a peep at the odd kind of life that was passing within the mansion of my maternal ancestors. I determined to do so in disguise. My booby cousin had never seen enough of me to be very familiar with my countenance, and a few years make a great difference between youth and manhood. I understood he was a breeder of cattle, 
and proud of his stock. I dressed myself, therefore, as a substantial farmer, and with the assistance of a red scratch that came low down on my forehead, made a complete change in my physiognomy. It was past three o'clock when I arrived at the gate of the park, and was admitted by an old woman, who was washing in a dilapidated building, which had once been a porter's lodge. I advanced up the remains of a noble avenue, many of the trees of which had been cut down and sold for timber. The grounds were in scarcely better keeping than during my uncle's lifetime. The grass was overgrown with weeds, and the trees wanted pruning and clearing of dead branches. Cattle were grazing about the lawns, and ducks and geese swimming in the fish-ponds. The road to the house bore very few traces of carriage wheels, as my cousin received few visitors, but such as came on foot or on horseback, and never used a carriage himself. Once, indeed, as I was told, he had had the old family carriage drawn out from among the dust and cobwebs of the coach-house, and furbished up, and had drove, with his mother, to the village church to take formal possession of the family pew. But there was such hooting and laughing after them as they passed through the village, and such giggling and bantering about the church door, that the pageant had never made a reappearance. As I approached the house, a legion of whelps sallied out barking at me, accompanied by the low howling, rather than barking, of two old, worn-out bloodhounds, which I recognized for the ancient lifeguards of my uncle. The house had still a neglected, random appearance, though much altered for the better, since my last visit. Several of the windows were broken and patched up with boards, and others had been bricked up to save taxes. I observed smoke, however, rising from the chimneys, a phenomenon rarely witnessed in the ancient establishment. On passing that part of the house where the dining-room was situated, I heard the sound of boisterous merriment, where three or four voices were talking at once, and oaths and laughter were horribly mingled. The uproar of the dogs had brought a servant to the door, a tall, hard-fisted country clown, with a livery coat put over the undergarments of a ploughman. I requested to see the master of the house, but was told he was at dinner with some gemmen of the neighborhood. I made known my business, and sent in to know if I might talk with the master about his cattle, for I felt a great desire to have a peep at him, or his orgies. Word was returned that he was engaged with company, and could not attend to business, but that if I would, quote, step in and take a drink of something, I was heartily welcome, end quote. I accordingly entered the hall, where whips and hats of all kinds and shapes were lying on an oaken table. Two or three clownish servants were lounging about. Everything had a look of confusion and carelessness. The apartments through which I passed had the same air of departed gentility and sluttish housekeeping. The once rich curtains were faded and dusty. The furniture greased and tarnished. On entering the dining-room, I found a number of odd vulgar-looking, rustic gentlemen, seated round a table, on which were bottles, decanters, tankards, pipes, and tobacco. Several dogs were lying about the room, 
were sitting and watching their masters, and one was gnawing a bone under a side table. The master of the feast sat at the head of the board. He was greatly altered. He had grown thick-set and rather gummy, with a fiery, foxy head of hair. There was a singular mixture of foolishness, arrogance, and conceit in his countenance. He was dressed in a vulgarly fine style, with leather breeches, a red waistcoat, and green coat, and was evidently, like his guests, a little flushed with drinking. The whole company stared at me with a whimsical muggy look, like men whose senses were a little obfuscated by beer rather than wine. My cousin, God forgive me, the appellation sticks in my throat. My cousin invited me with awkward civility, or, as he intended it, condescension, to sit to the table and drink. We talked, as usual, about the weather, the crops, politics, and hard times. My cousin was a loud politician, and evidently accustomed to talk, without contradiction at his own table. He was amazingly loyal, and talked of standing by the throne to the last guinea, quote, as every gentleman of fortune should do, end quote. The village exciseman, who was half asleep, could just ejaculate, very true, to everything he said. The conversation turned upon cattle. He boasted of his breed, his mode of managing it, and of the general management of his estate. This unluckily drew on the history of the place and of the family. He spoke of my late uncle with the greatest irreverence, which I could easily forgive. He mentioned my name, and my blood began to boil. He described my frequent visits to my uncle when I was a lad, and I found the varlet, even at that time, imp as he was, had known that he was to inherit the estate. He described the scene of my uncle's death and the opening of the will, with a degree of coarse humor that I had not expected from him, and, vexed as I was, I could not help joining in the laugh, for I have always relished a joke, even though made at my own expense. He went on to speak of my various pursuits, my strolling freak, and that somewhat nettled me. At length he talked of my parents. He ridiculed my father. I stomached even that, though with great difficulty. He mentioned my mother with a sneer, and in an instant he lay sprawling at my feet. Here a scene of tumult succeeded. The table was nearly overturned. Bottles, glasses, and tankards rolled crashing and clattering about the floor. The company seized hold of both of us to keep us from doing farther mischief. I struggled to get loose, for I was boiling with fury. My cousin defied me to strip and fight him on the lawn. I agreed, for I felt the strength of a giant in me, and I longed to pummel him soundly. Away, then, we were born. A ring was formed. I had a second assigned me in true boxing style. My cousin, as he advanced to fight, said something about his generosity in showing me such fair play, when I had made such an unprovoked attack upon him at his own table. "'Stop there!' 
cried I, in a rage, unprovoked. Know that I am John Buckthorn, and you have insulted the memory of my mother. The lout was suddenly struck by what I said. He drew back and reflected for a moment. Nay, damn it, said he, that's too much. That's clear another thing. I've a mother myself, and no one shall speak ill of her, bad as she is. He paused again. Nature seemed to have a rough struggle in his rude bosom. Damn it, cousin, cried he. I'm sorry for what I said. Thou'st served me right in knocking me down, and I like thee the better for it. Here's my hand. Come and live with me. And damn but the best room in the house, and the best horse in the stable, shall be at thy service. I declare to you, I was strongly moved at this instance of nature breaking her way through such a lump of flesh. I forgave the fellow in a moment, all his crimes of having been born in wedlock, and inheriting my estate. I shook the hand he offered me, to convince him that I bore him no ill will and then making my way through the gaping crowd of toad-eaters, bade adieu to my uncle's domains for ever. This is the last I have seen or heard of my cousin, or of the domestic concerns of Doubting Castle. End of chapter 20 Recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida